Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we are continuing in a sermon series. Well, actually, you're getting a bit of a two-for-one this Sunday. We're starting our Advent series, uh, which we are calling Long Expected from the line of the great hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. But uh, we're going to stay in the book of Acts for this series because we need to catch up to our other Christ Church uh, sister churches. So you're going to get a two-for-one. This is right at the, the center of the Venn diagram where Acts and Advent overlap. In our, ser- our, uh, our sermon this morning is going to be from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. This is a, a beautiful story. It's a, a story that's become famous in Christian uh, communities and in Christian art that's been depicted by uh, numerous artists. It's the conversion of Saul. And if you're new to church, new to Christianity, it, it'll be helpful to know as you head into this sermon and into this reading that Saul, the man who's here called Saul, is the man who by the end of the book of Acts becomes known as Paul, the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, the author of much of the New Testament. And this is the story of when Jesus appeared to him, when Jesus met him and changed his life forever. It's an amazing story. And so, if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and to the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, 
Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, in our, in our family, uh, the Friday after Thanksgiving marks the official beginning of when you're allowed to start Christmas stuff, right? We, I'm, we try to be gracious about most things, but I'm a bit of a legalist when it comes to Thanksgiving observance, right? We've got to get through Thanksgiving, then we launch into, launch into Christmas. And so that means decorating and movies and the songs and the whole deal. And if you look at the movies that we love to watch and the stories that we love to tell at Christmas time, many of them are stories of changed hearts, right? From, from really one of the earliest uh, Christmas stories that we love to tell, The Christmas Carol uh, by Charles Dickens, right? We meet miserly Scrooge, the rich man who hoards all of his wealth and then uh, is changed over the course of a Christmas and the appearances of the ghost, kind of a freaky Christmas story. Uh, changed into a, a, a generous person. He's transformed. Or maybe a little closer to home, we have the story of how the Grinch stole Christmas, right? Remember the green, nasty Grinch who sits up on his mountain, cold-hearted, resentful, and hateful of all the Who's in Whoville and their love of Christmas. And so he resolves to steal Christmas, to steal all of their gifts. And then on Christmas morning, He sees and he hears them singing and he hears them celebrating Christmas even without their gifts. He speaks and says, it came without ribbons, it came without tags, it came without packages, boxes, or bags. Maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. And his eyes swell with tears. They grow. We're told that he feels his heart grow three times. The size that it was before, he laughs and he cries and he feels all toasty inside. Unfamiliar with tears, he thinks that he's leaking from his eyes and a shaft of sunlight shines on him as his heart is changed by Christmas. We love, it seems, all of these Christmas stories about a changed heart, about the hope that we really can uh, be transformed, that hard hearts can become soft, that uh, greedy hearts can become generous, that hateful people can become loving. These stories that we love to tell at Christmas tell on us a little bit, that we all long uh, for the prospect and hope of change, that we could be transformed. And yet, at the same time, we become incredibly offended if anyone suggests that we need to change, right? We long for the hope of transformation, but try telling someone, hey, actually, I think that you need to change. And I I think you need to change in these particular ways, right? We long for change, and yet we live in a world that tells us nobody has a right to tell you what to do. Nobody has a right to suggest that the way that you're living is in any way in need of reform, 
And so really what we have in this story is the story that uh, in its own way, the Grinch story kind of hints at, the Scrooge story certainly hints at, but it's this idea of conversion, the conversion of life, that real change is possible, not just little change around the edges, but that a human heart can be made new, that you could be transformed and made into a new kind of person. This morning we looked and read the story of Saul on the road to Damascus and the appearance of Jesus. The story has become so synonymous with conversion that sometimes we'll even refer to conversion as a Damascus road experience, right? Seeing the light, being transformed. And the Christian history is full of conversion stories like this one. Men and women whose lives are turned upside down and inside out when they meet Jesus. Perhaps you've heard some of them, the story of Augustine in North Africa hearing take and read and then opening the scriptures in him feeling as though light flashed from heaven and love invaded his heart. Love, as he put it, ever ancient and ever new, taking hold of him. Or maybe you've heard the story of St. Francis of Assisi, who was just walking down a street in medieval Italy, a wealthy young merchant, and heard someone read the story where Jesus said, go and sell all your possessions and follow me. And in that moment, his heart changed and Francis did it. He sold his inheritance and became something of a missionary monk in devotion to Jesus. Or maybe you've heard the story of John Wesley and his story of saying that he felt his heart strangely warmed on hearing of the good news of Jesus. Or C.S. Lewis, in Surprised by Joy, when he described his conversion, is being dragged kicking and screaming into faith, the most reluctant convert in all of England. Well, all of these conversion stories, all of them kind of pale in comparison to the story of Saul, this miraculous transformation as Saul meets Jesus. And we might think that this story feels so very different than our experience, right? Maybe you, you don't have this kind of dramatic conversion story when you came to faith. Maybe you still have been wanting to know Jesus, but it's felt a very long way away, this idea that you could see him and know him and believe in him and trust him. Maybe we don't believe that this kind of change is possible. And yet Paul, writing years and years later, uh, near the end of his life, writing to a young friend of his named Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said this. He said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the very worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as a pattern or as an example for all those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying, look, my conversion from a murderous, self-righteous, angry man, the worst of sinners, into who I know myself to be in Jesus is meant to be an example, a pattern. Not that your life, not that your story is going to look exactly like Paul's, but so that other Christians, other people who know themselves to be sinners, can look at it and say, well, you know what, the details might be different. I may never have been knocked off my horse and made blind and heard a voice and all that, but it can be a pattern. It can be an example of what it looks like 
When Jesus comes into the life of someone desperately in need of transformation, and when their lives get turned around by Jesus, it shows us this hope that real change is possible. Even hope, as Paul says, for the worst of sinners. Look, Ananias gets it. He gets what a dramatic conversion is being offered here. Because what does he say when when God speaks to him and says, go, and you're going to find a man named Saul who's waiting on you? He says, no, no, no. Uh, I think you've got the wrong guy. Right? This Saul, he's been killing people in Jerusalem. Now he's coming to Damascus to kill people. This is the wrong Saul. Surely you meant someone else. And God says, no, no. He's a new man. I've changed him. And so what we're going to look at this morning is what happened when Saul met Jesus on the road and how it reoriented his life and how it has the power, whether it's for the first time or the hundredth time in our lives, to reorient our lives and turn us around and make us new. So Jesus appears to Saul. Saul, it should be noted, is on his way to Damascus. And he's going with a particular intent. We're told that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, in the Greek, this, sound, this is an effort to portray Saul is almost subhuman. This is the language breathing out hot threats that would be used of an animal breathing out this warm, kind of violent breath. And so what he's saying is that this, this rage, this self-righteousness, this uh, bentness in Saul to kill, to protect what he thought was the purity of his religion, had reduced him to something more beast than man. And so he's on the way to Damascus with murder in his eyes. And Jesus appears to him. Suddenly we're told in verse 3, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. When Paul heard those little words, I am Jesus, everything changed about his life. When the one who knocked him off his horse and spoke to him, and had him uh, totally laid out on this road, spoke, I am Jesus. It changed everything about Saul. Let's look at some of what it changed. It showed him in that moment that Saul had a lot to learn about God, and so do we. right? It showed Saul that he had a lot to learn about who God was, about who God is. right? Remember, Saul... Uh, with all of this murderous rage in his mind, was doing what he believed God wanted him to do. Right? In persecuting the Christians, what he believed he was doing was maintaining the purity of Israel. He believed that it was his job as a Pharisee, as a teacher of the law, to keep Israelite religion utterly pure, free of defilement, in the hope that if they could do that, then God would return to them that he would rescue them, that he would vindicate them. And so Saul, in spite of the anger and the rage and the murder and the power and all of it, was doing this out of a a sense that this is what God wanted him to do. I remember uh, 
the first Letterman show after 9-11. Do you remember that? Uh, Dave Letterman stood up in, in, a new, in front of a New York audience, and I don't remember his entire monologue. But after 9-11, he said, not only did people fly these buildings, in, you know, fly these planes into this building, but they did it believing that God wanted them to. And as long as you live, will that ever make any kind of sense? His language was a bit more colorful, but it was a poignant moment. And the fact is that, that when our ideas about God become warped, when our, when our ideas about who God is and what God wants out of our lives becomes warped, men and women do terrible things. And so when Jesus appears to Saul and he knocks him off of his horse and blinds him with light, it's a story not unlike, it, it, it rhymes with a lot of the other stories that we see in the scriptures, right? It's not all that different than when God appears to Moses in a burning bush and Moses says, who should I say sent me? And, and God says, I am, right? It's not all that different than Jacob wrestling with the angel and having his name changed. But in all of those stories, the God who, they, who, who the, the fathers met is identified as Yahweh, right? I am. And yet here, when Paul has this experience, Jesus identifies himself, not as Yahweh, but as Jesus. I am Jesus. Right, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God who you believe yourself to be serving. But what he's saying is, what he's saying here to, to Paul is exactly what he says in the Gospel of John. Right, that I and the Father are one. Right, that if anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father. Right, that if we want to know what God is like, we don't have to figure it out on our own. We don't have to look at him as a projection of our own wish fulfillment. We don't have to imagine what we want him to be like. We look at who Jesus is. That Jesus says, if you've seen me, if you've seen my kindness and my mercy and my grace and my compassion, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so in that moment, Saul is introduced to a whole new way of thinking about God. That the God of the Christians is the God who's the father of Jesus Christ. Years later, he wrote about this experience to his friends at the church in Corinth. He tells the story this way. For the God who said, let sh light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right, what Paul's saying is when I saw the shining face of Jesus on the road to Damascus, that was God revealing his own glory to me. That was the glory that I'd spent my whole life chasing after. That was what I was hoping for. That was, you know, all of his uh, belief that God wanted him to keep Israel perfectly pure. It was all so that someday he might see that glory. And yet here he shows him in Jesus exactly who God is. And I know some of you here, some of you listening, have wondered if you could really know what God is like. Right, maybe you've made some fits and starts in an effort of learning what he's like. You've tried to pray. You've sought different ways to add spiritual depth or meaning to your life, to add some sense of transcendence. And yet what Paul's story shows us here is that Jesus comes and shows God to us. Right? That we don't have to seek after God. 
We don't have to wonder and kind of figure him out on our own. He comes to us to show us who he's like, to show us what a relationship with him is like. In the moment that Paul sees him, everything changes. These huge issues like who God is and what God wants from him and what God's doing in the world. These big picture worldview life-altering questions get changed when Jesus answers him, I am Jesus. And so the question for us is, are we willing to have Jesus utterly redirect our lives? Right, to have Jesus change our answers to all of these big questions of life. You know, our culture doesn't really tell conversion stories anymore. Right, when, uh, when modern Americans tell our spiritual stories, if you listen, rarely anymore is it a story of complete 180 change. One sociologist says that in American life, the coming out story has replaced the conversion story, right? Not just particularly in the areas of, of sexual orientation and those kind of things, but in general, the idea that we need an outside intervention to change has been replaced with the idea that what we really need is to come out and be more fully ourselves, Right, that what we really need isn't change from the outside, but self-expression and self-actualization from the inside. Right, what we need is to throw off the shackles, whether it be of marriage or of culture or of religion, and become more fully who we were always destined to be. I can say without, you know, I realize that I risk a few of my man points on this, this statement. Did you all know Adele had a new album that came out last week? And she did an exclusive interview with Oprah. Did you see that? And what Adele, she's coming out of a divorce, which we can all have a world of compassion for anyone who's coming out of, of all that, that that means for somebody. But what she said was interesting was she said she knew she had to get rid of her husband. She came up with better names for it than that. Because she looked and she just said, you know what? I realized that I, was, I wasn't happy anymore. And so it wouldn't be right for me to stay if I wasn't happy. And of course, this met with widespread approval. But the idea that we have to throw off anything in our lives that gets out in the way of our quest for happiness is the unquestioned default assumption of our world, right? That if there's something in your life, whether it be outside of you, whether it be a job or a relationship or anything that comes in your way of your happiness, that spiritual fulfillment means shedding that skin and finally becoming who you are. And if you contrast that with what happens to Saul, right, where something happens from outside of him that doesn't just say, hey, you need to get where you're going, you need to become who you are, but says, actually, if you get where you're going, death is going to be the result, death for others, death for yourselves, right? What you need isn't uh, to throw off all constraint to get what you've always wanted, but that actually if you get what you've always wanted, bad things are going to result. And so what you need isn't just to become more fully who you are, but you need to be changed. You need to have your heart transformed so that what you long for, what you want, begins to be what you were made to want, a life of love and wholeness and worship. What if what we really need isn't satisfaction, isn't self-authentication, 
authentication, but conversion, to be changed from something outside of us. And this is what happens to Saul. Everything about him is changed. His whole system of meaning, he tells us elsewhere that he spent his whole life building credit for himself in this religious system, that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a scholar of scholars, a Hebrew of Hebrews, that he had spent his whole life building points by what he thought God wanted. And all of that gets changed here. He accepts this new world, this new vision of God. And you know what he says after the fact? He says, I consider all of it a loss, right? He says, I never actually lost anything at all when Jesus knocked me off that horse. Because what I received from him when I lost everything I thought I had, what I received from him was so much more. This life, this grace, this forgiveness makes all of that seem like nothing. And the second thing that Saul learns in this meeting with Jesus is that none of us are ever alone. Neither him, nor you, nor me. Look at what, uh, I love the way that Jesus answers Saul here. He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Right, now Saul knew, uh, of course, that when he said, I am Jesus, that this probably wasn't good news for him. Right, that this was uh, what he believed to be a deceased, executed religious leader who got what he deserved from the Romans and from the Jewish authorities. And so what Saul thought he was doing was persecuting Jesus' followers, but not persecuting Jesus because Jesus was dead. He got what he deserved. And so when Jesus appears and says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, listen to what he's saying. He's saying, I'm not dead, right? I'm very much alive and I'm here with you. And what you, I'm so bound up in the life of my people that what happens to them happens to me. What you do to them, you do to me. So join to them that when they suffer, I suffer. That in persecuting them, you're not just persecuting them, you're persecuting me. This is a, and it's just a, a small little line, but it hints at this deep communion, this deep union that Jesus enjoys and that he offers all who believe in him. That through faith in him, you're not just somebody who follows him. You're not just somebody who listens to him and tries to learn from his writings. You become by faith so caught up and joined to him that when you suffer, he suffers, that he suffers with you, that he celebrates with you, that he's in you. Again, as Paul is going to write to some friends of his later in the letter to the Colossians, he puts it this way. He says that their lives have become hidden with God in Christ. They're right. When when you believe in Christ, you become so uh, intimately joined to him that your life is hidden with him and his life flows through you. He's going to tell the Romans that neither height nor depth nor life, nor death, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that you're so joined to Jesus that you'll never be alone, that he's joined himself to you. Like branches grafted into a vine, as Jesus put it in John 15, or a body is joined to its head, as Paul will put it to the Corinthians. Christ is joined with his people and he invites us into that joining, into that intimacy, into that union. Because you see, that's ultimately 
what changes your life, right? It's not contrary to what Dr. Seuss would tell us, hearing warm Christmas music and having our hearts warmed and growing three sizes, right? Mere sentimentality isn't enough to really change us, right? What changes the human heart is being joined to God by grace, right? Getting what, not just what we think we want, but what we were created for, union with our creator, union with our father, hearing his voice, responding by faith, being filled with the spirit, joined to him so that he is in us and we are in him. And the craziest part of this whole story, right, crazier than the voice and the light and the blinding and the scales, crazier than all of that, is that this happened to Saul, Saul of all people, the one who was persecuting him, that he doesn't knock Saul off his horse to kill him, right? That's what most people would expect would be happening here, right? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You'd think that what you would hear here would be at least stop it, or I'm going to kill you, or you're under my judgment, or here comes a sword. But instead, that's not what he hears. He hears that he has a future because of God's grace in Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do, right? He, gives, he starts making plans for Saul's future, right? This isn't the end of the road for you. This isn't the end of the line for you. In fact, I've got a plan for you. I have a hope for you. I have a future for you. Remember, Saul was a bad dude. Saul was not a good person. Saul was not uh, a work in progress. Saul wasn't somebody who was showing good signs and seeking the right kind of things. Saul was there when Stephen was stoned. Saul was a murderous religious zealot who was out to do more damage. He was a killer and he was angry. And when Jesus meets him and knocks him over and blinds him, Instead of this being the end for him, he gets grace. He gets go, go to the city and I've got somebody that's going to meet you there. Go, I've got a plan for you. I'm going to show you what you're to do for me. I'm going to tell you my plan for you. How do you think about your future? Do you think about your future with anxiety, with dread? Do you look back on your past with guilt? And think, hey, look, because of the things that I've done, I'm just fortunate to still be alive. Anything that I get, I'm gonna, I don't have much hope for my future. Well, into that, listen, if there was a hope for Saul's future, there's a hope for your future. Right? If Saul's sin didn't define him, then your sin doesn't have to define you. The way that Paul, again, is going to tell this story later to, to uh, his friends in Galatia, is this, he's going to say, I have been crucified with Christ. Look, he said, when I got knocked off my horse and made blind, that was my death. That was a part of me, the old part of me, that sinful, angry, hateful part of me, that self-righteous part of me. Not just going blind and getting knocked down, but dying. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. That me is dead. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. This new life, this open future, this life of communion with God and purpose in his, in his plan in the world, I've come alive to something new. 
I love this other part of this miracle that God at the same time or just after he's appearing in Jesus to Saul also appears and speaks to Ananias and he says, go, go to Damascus. There's a man there waiting on you. We already talked about that a little bit. Ananias says, I think you got the wrong guy. Saul sends him or Jesus sends him and says, no, no, I've changed him. And Ananias is scared as he must have been as doubtful as he might have been, he goes. He goes to find Saul because at some point in Ananias' life, we don't know much of his previous story, but at some point, Jesus got a hold of Ananias as well, right? At some point, he knocked him off his horse, whatever that horse was for him. At some point, he took away his sight, whether probably not literally, but gave him a new way of seeing himself and the world. And so Ananias, when he's told to go, At some point, even if it's reluctantly and fearfully, must have said, yeah, this is the kind of thing that Jesus does, right? Jesus makes somebody out of nobody. Jesus takes broken, messed up people and makes them new and knits them into a family. And so he goes and he finds him. And as we're told uh, here in verse 17, He laid his hands on him, and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me. I love this. I love that the first words that Saul hears from Christian lips is brother. Right? This one who had been persecuting and killing and stoning and arresting. The first name that he's given by a Christian is Brother Saul. Because that's what happens by God's grace. That we become a family of the forgiven, right? A family of people who know our own weakness, who know our own sin, who know the power of God to change us. And so nobody is beyond being included as a brother, as a sister, as a mother, as a father, as a member of this family of people, unlikely people who have been and are being made new by the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that when we were still sinners, that when we, as as this Paul made new would tell us, when we were still enemies, you reconciled us to yourself in Jesus Lord, I love that for Paul, that wasn't just abstract theology. That was his story. That he knew himself to be your enemy, reconciled through the cross. Lord, help us to see our own lives rightly. If we've never had that moment where we stop and are stopped by Jesus in our tracks, where we turn and listen, repent and believe, Lord, we pray that you would do that for us now. You would shine your light in our hearts and begin your work of making us new by your Spirit. Lord, for each of us, we pray uh, that we would hear your voice, that we would bend our ear to follow you wherever it is that you lead, that we would uh, cling to you as you work to make us new. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. 
you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.